John certainly has been, is to this day a dear friend, one that I can share my heart with in ministry. You know, uh, I don't know if the age thing was true or not, but it's sometimes hard for me to recognize and, and think this is even possible that it was 50 years ago last month that I began my first pastorate in central North Carolina. Of course, I was only 10 years old, but uh, <laughs> it's just been a, a wonderful ride the Lord has given us. And Jeannie and I are grateful in these uh, what are sometimes called retirement years to be still serving the Lord. Uh, I will preach probably in a dozen or more churches this year some of them uh, more than once, and the Lord has just opened doors for us that we're very grateful for. Um, I can tell, being in lots of different churches, I can tell when a church is used to hearing the Word. It was such a joy to preach to you folks last week. Uh, I can tell that you're used to hearing the Word of God clearly proclaimed and applied to your lives. You know, Pastor John has, um, this Pastor John, not, not this Pastor John, the one over there, has a, an amazing combination of the, the mind of a scholar coupled with the heart of a shepherd. And he is able to break open the Word in a very deep way, but also in a way that communicates his heart for you as his flock. And I am so grateful that um, he has been a blessing to me through his years, just in interacting with him and uh, learning from him. Well, last week we talked about Elijah at the lonely brook Kareth, at a place of extreme loneliness in his life. We saw what God does in our lonely times. What is God doing when we are lonely? Today we're going to see, using another passage and another person in Scripture, what God is doing when life seems out of control. And I appreciated the worship this morning, especially that last song, which is one that I have come to love over the past few years. Um, it fits so beautifully as an introduction to this message, so thank you, brother, for that. It was probably, oh, about 20 years or so ago that I was uh, on my way to uh, a board meeting at Appalachian Bible College, and, and uh, if you're familiar with where Appalachian Bible College is, you know that you get off Route 19 on an exit ramp, which takes you down to another four-lane major highway that goes right through Beckley and right alongside the campus of ABC. Well, I had come to the end of that uh, exit ramp, and at that time there was no traffic signal there, so you're desperately trying to find a time to get out across four lanes of traffic to get over toward the college. Today they have a traffic signal, and it may be because of what I'm going to tell you next. They put it there, but... Um, I pulled up to the end of that ramp, and I was going to be chairing the meeting that day, so my focus was on the agenda and how to get out in that traffic, and, and I did not recognize what was happening behind me until I heard the squeal of brakes. And I looked in my rearview mirror just about the same time a truck plowed into the back of my car. I don't know what happened to the guy who was, or what was wrong with the guy, what was uh, occupying his attention or whatever, or if he was on some kind of substance, I don't know. Police estimated he was doing 50 miles an hour when he hit my car. And when he hit my car, it was as though everything started in slow motion. You've probably been in situations like that of, of, of fast-happening crisis, but it seems like everything just slows down. And I knew that I was being catapulted out into that other four lanes of traffic, and I knew somebody was going to hit me right in the side of my car. But it was as though things were just barely moving. I remember crying out, Lord, help me. 
And then, of course, somebody did hit me right in the driver's side door. Um, I, I wasn't able to, to move or get out of the car. Uh, police showed up pretty quickly. EMS showed up pretty quickly. And uh, I couldn't, my phone was in the seat beside me. Well, it was now in the floor, out of reach. I couldn't move to get it. And so I felt totally out of control. I've never felt more out of control in a situation in my life. I couldn't even reach my phone to let Jeannie know what had happened. I couldn't call Dr. Anderson, the president of the college, to tell him, I can't chair the meeting today. You're going to have to get the vice chairman to do that. So I couldn't do any of that. I just felt completely helpless. Uh, the EMS showed up. They took me to the hospital because they thought I had some broken bones. It was just bumps and bruises, thank the Lord. The car was absolutely demolished. The, the trunk was up in the back seat. The side was caved in, and so it was gone. But I have never felt so out of control in those few seconds where I was being pushed out into traffic and not knowing what would happen next. Well, life is kind of like that, isn't it? Sometimes things seem to be kind of humming along real smoothly, but most of the time in our lives, something seems out of control, and sometimes in our lives... Everything seems to be out of control. So it may be that there are a number of things that may happen that cause you to feel that way, like life is out of control. Maybe you simply have too much to do and you feel overwhelmed by your to-do list or all of the tasks that lie before you. Maybe it is someone who has said or done something to you that has been extremely harmful and there's no way for you to really clean up the mess that that's caused. Maybe it's because of some tragedy that has come into your life, a terrifying diagnosis, a wayward child, a divorce, the death of a spouse, something that is just huge and life-changing that makes you feel like my life is spinning out of control. Sometimes it's our own unwise decisions that create a situation where life just seems to be spinning out of control. Well, I'm here to communicate to you this morning this main truth. When your life seems out of control, God is still in control. We're going to look at a passage, at actually an instance in the life of Jesus, where it would seem as though life was out of control. What was happening to him was out of control. John 18 is our text this morning, John chapter 18. It's the story that John records of the arrest of Jesus. Now, I've never been arrested. You may be happy to hear that. I'm sure John is. Uh, but I, I know a little bit about arrest. He knows a lot about arrests, having served on a police force here in Christiansburg early in his, his working life. Uh, but I would think that when you get arrested, you're not in control of that situation at all. You're not in control of what's happening to you. Law enforcement officer is. You're not in control of where you're going. Uh, you don't have any say. Uh, let's stop at Burger King on the way, you know, to wherever. We're, no, you don't have any say. You're, you're completely out of your hands. And uh, you don't have any control over what's going to happen to you when you get to the police station or wherever it's going to be, to the jail, whatever. You're, it's totally out of your control. So we would think that when Jesus was arrested, it would be totally out of his control. But that is not at all the way John records the story. As John records the story in John chapter 18, what we find is he portrays Jesus as being in complete control of everything that is happening, 
guiding, purposefully following the Father's direction and will toward the cross to fulfill the greatest act in all of human history when Jesus would die for our sins. He is purposefully moving history in these hours and days toward that cataclysmic event. He is in complete control. We find in this text, in the first 12 verses, four ways that Jesus was in complete control of the situation of his arrest. And they also give us four reasons why we can trust him when our lives seem out of control. The first reason you can trust him when life seems out of control is because of his knowledge. Because of his knowledge. Look with me, please, at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, And the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now John tells us that Jesus had left the upper room where he had met with his disciples late on that Thursday night, the day before he would go to the cross. He walks down that steep hill, off of the Temple Mount, down into the Kidron Valley, a very narrow valley between that steep hill and the more gentle hill that rises up on the other side, the Mount of Olives. And they would go into a garden. Now there's a gap in the record of what happened between verses 1 and 2. John doesn't give us all of the details. In that gap between verses 1 and 2, we know the other Gospels tell the story of Jesus going deeper into the garden, taking Peter, uh, Peter and James and John with him. And as he prays that those three agonizing times, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. And he resigns himself to going to the cross. There's an intense battle going on there. But at the same time, what we find in verses 2 and 3 is happening, that Judas is gathering what the Bible here calls, the ESV calls, a band of soldiers. The Greek word is literally a cohort of Roman soldiers. Now, a cohort of soldiers was 600 Roman soldiers. Now, I I can't say for sure that all 600 soldiers went to the garden that night. Sometimes, cohort was also used of a smaller group of 200 soldiers. Even then, this is quite a display of force on the part of Judas and the Roman army. Along with some religious leaders, they come into the garden And it looks like they've got things completely under control. I mean, this seems like the perfect trap as this this, uh, winding group of lanterns and torches and soldiers and religious leaders makes their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the perfect time. It's in the middle of the night. All the hosts that have come to Jerusalem for the Passover are asleep. It is a kind of an out-of-the-way place, a garden, not a place with a lot of buildings around where a lot of people would be. So whatever they have to do to take Jesus will probably not be heard by anyone. This seems like the perfect trap. 
It seems like they are completely in control and Jesus has nothing to do with this. But this, these verses tell us two things about his knowledge. The first thing is, not described this way, but I believe it indicates our Lord's knowledge of what he was doing on this night and the bigger picture of the atonement he would make for our sins. He knew where he was going. And by that I mean he purposely chose to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're familiar with the last week of Jesus' life and his going in and out of Jerusalem, you know that he didn't always stay, not every night, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Earlier in the week, it's clear, it is stated that he stayed in Bethany, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his dear friends. But this night, he chooses to spend the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he is beginning that great battle that will issue in the cross. It's interesting to me that 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam did great battle that had consequences for the whole human race in a garden. The last Adam will do such battle in a garden. The first Adam sinned in that garden. The last Adam will overcome sin in this garden. The first Adam faced the enemy and fell in that garden. The last Adam will conquer that enemy in this garden. The first Adam hid from God in the Garden of Eden. The last Adam will clearly present himself openly to do the will of the Father in this garden. It is no accident that Jesus chose to go to a garden. There's tremendous symbolism here where Jesus is showing that he came to undo all of the damage that the first Adam did when he brought sin into the experience of the human race. So the, the last Adam is in a garden doing the exact opposite of what the first Adam did. He knew exactly where he was going. But the symbolism goes even deeper than that. In order to get to that garden, he would have to step across the small stream that flowed through the, the narrow Kidron Valley just outside the temple grounds. The brook Kidron. Now that brook also served as a conduit for all of the blood that would drain from the sacrifices offered in the temple. Josephus, the Roman historian, tells us that at Passover, over 200,000 lambs would be offered as sacrifices during that week of Passover. And so Jesus, toward the end of that week, is stepping across a brook that is stained with the blood of thousands of lambs. And as he steps across that brook, it is as though he is stepping beyond all of that blood of all of those sacrificial animals, showing that he, the Lamb of God, has come to shed his blood to take away the sin of the world. So Jesus knew exactly where he was going, and everything he does has such picturesque and symbolic value in this beginning of the battle against the archenemy Satan. He knew exactly where he was going. But also, the second thing that is said about his knowledge here is he knew what would happen. Did you see that in verse 4? 
Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? He offers himself to the arresting band of soldiers. Why? He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he would be arrested. And he knew all that would happen to him in the next few days. He knew everything about the mockery of trials that he would go through. He knew all about the beating and the scourging. He knew all about the road to the cross. He knew all about the agonizing death of the cross. He knew everything that would happen to him. He had it all in his heart. There are no surprises. He's not caught off guard. He knows everything that will happen to him. And so he is simply fulfilling the plan of the Father in exactly where he should be and exactly what he should be doing. He knows where he was going. He knows what would happen to him. And you know what, my friend? The same God, the same Jesus Christ, who moved with such knowledge and purpose on that night, moves with the same knowledge and purpose in our lives. When things seem out of control, He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what's going on in your life, and He knows exactly what will happen in your life. There are no surprises with God. We have a dear missionary friend, a missionary who was actually sent out by our church in Princeton, Johnston Chapel, first uh, to Togo, and then for most of her career in the Ukraine. She is now uh, the uh, medical director of the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. But she has a saying that she will often say when she's telling you about things that are going on in her life or some you know, impossible situation she's facing, she'll tell you all about it and then she'll just kind of pause and say, but the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And He does. The Lord knows. Back before we had all of the technology that we have today in ministry, um, do you remember chalk artists that used to come to churches and do chalk art as a part of a gospel presentation? Some of you are nodding your heads. You remember that, don't you? In the first church that I started pastoring in North Carolina back in the 70s, we had chalk artists come as special meetings. And one time we had a man come. He was the Christian service director at Piedmont Bible College where I, was, I had been a student. And his name Terry Martin. And Terry Martin uh, came down and did a Sunday evening service for us with chalk art. And he was quite a chalk artist. He had, you know, the big canvas encased in, in wood frame with the different uh, lights over top of it and the, the board down at the bottom the, that had all different colors of chalk. And so he got ready to do his chalk art and he put on that dust cover, you know, to keep the chalk off of his suit coat. And he grabbed a piece of black chalk and he walked up to that canvas and he did something like this. He went just like that. And I'd never seen a, a chalk art done before and I thought, oh my, what a, what a horrible streak on that canvas. He must be nervous or something. I, um, but it didn't bother him. He just put that chalk down and picked up another color of chalk and started working over in this corner and then up here and down in the middle and started... Occasionally, he would kind of uh, brush off with his hand that, that ugly black streak at the beginning. And as the picture began to take shape, you could tell he was drawing a hillside with the three crosses on it. And it became apparent that that very first move he made was the outline of the hill on which the crosses stood. It looked like a terrible mistake at first. But you know what? 
Terry Martin knew exactly what he was doing. And God knows exactly what he's doing in your life and mine. When life seems out of control, God knows what he's doing. His knowledge is a reason for us to trust him in those times. The second reason why we can trust God when life seems out of control is because of his power. Not just his knowledge, but his power. Look with me now at verse 4 again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, the garden is now awash with the lights and lanterns of religious leaders and some 200 at least Roman soldiers. And that light reveals 11 shadowy figures, but one commanding figure who steps forward. And as he steps forward, 200 Roman soldiers put their hands on the grip of their swords. But all Jesus does is ask an a quiet question, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. Now, I'm using the ESV today. I have a note at the bottom of, uh, of the scripture here that says, the Greek says simply, I am. If you have a King James or some other translation, you may notice that the word he is in italics, which means it was not in the original Greek. It's not what Jesus literally said. What Jesus literally said is not I am he. English translators have put that in to make correct grammar English-wise. What Jesus said is I am. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember the story about Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush when God is calling him into the ministry, if you will, to be the deliverer of his people Israel? And Moses is starting to give all these excuses. And he says, well, who, who will I say sent me if they want some credentials or something? And God says, tell them, I am. I am that I am has sent you. The literal spelling of that word I am becomes the personal covenant-keeping name for God, Yahweh. I am, and that is the name Jesus uses here. Jesus says, I am, claiming that name of Yahweh, claiming deity, and the power of that name, and the power of Jesus causes 200 Roman soldiers to literally fall backwards. This is like the shock wave of an atomic explosion. And they fall backwards at His power. This is the same power that calmed the storm, that stilled the winds, that healed the sick, that raised the dead. This is the power of God resident in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now tell me who's in control of this situation. They have come to arrest Christ and they have been arrested by Him. It is clear He is in command. He is in control. I am has spoken to them. So He demonstrated His power. 
But you know what is just as amazing to me? That after that amazing demonstration of power, he restrained his power. It is clear from what Jesus has said already that one more word and he could slaughter them all. They are in way over their heads. They've come for him and his disciples. He offers himself. They've got plenty to, to, call, to, to deal with any resistance, plenty of troops. But they recognize with that word of power, they are in way over their heads. Just like Jesus will do when he comes at his second coming. Revelation 19 describes it. The sword from his mouth will instantly destroy and slaughter the massed armies of the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus could have done the same thing here. One more word, they could have all been slaughtered, but he doesn't utter that word. He has demonstrated his power. They know now who's in control. But now he restrains his power. He holds it back. There is no further demonstration because now he will let them take him in fulfillment of what he had said earlier in John's gospel in John chapter 10, verse 17, when Jesus said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, power to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So he has displayed his power in unmistakable terms. But now he restrains his power in order to fulfill the Scriptures that he would lay down his life no one would forcibly take him to the cross. He would give himself freely for our sins. Now, here's the application to us. What about his power in your situation? The question, Jay, you asked when you were introducing that song is so true. So many times we ask God, why? Why aren't you doing something now? Where's your power now? What's going on? I don't understand. Because sometimes God chooses in our lives to demonstrate His power. At other times, He chooses to restrain His power. But we can rest assured, knowing what He's doing here, we can rest assured that whether God demonstrates His power on your behalf or whether He restrains His power, He is still in control. He still has an infinitely wise and good purpose for what he's doing. Either way. I read the story of a true story of an uh, uh, incident that happened in Africa, in Tanzania, in 1992. Southern Baptist missionary Rob Moore and a Tanzanian pastor were traveling to a, a faraway city. And uh, they were about 60 miles away from home. They're going through a little village and they were involved in an accident, a car accident. Their car actually uh, hit another car carrying five people. Neither the missionary nor the national pastor were injured, but the five people in the other car were. One of them had to be taken to a hospital, and, and what was done there saved that person's life. But uh, 
as they stood around, a crowd gathered, as is often the case in little villages like that. A crowd gathered around the scene, wondering what was going on. And as they were waiting for things to develop, the missionary and the pastor began handing out tracts to the people around them and, and uh, praying with them for the others who had been injured in that other car. Well, the missionary, Rob Moore, was able to get transportation back to his home and the national pastor stayed there in that little village for another couple of days to arrange for the car to be picked up and, and taken back to their village. And during that time, some other national pastors joined him, and they began to witness to people and talk to people and led 14 people to Christ during those few days. And they actually began a church in that little village. You know what they named the church? Accident Baptist Church. <laughs> Seriously, true story. Named, accident, named it in Swahili, but the translation is Accident Baptist Church. Now, how would you like to tell people, where you go to church? I go to Accident Baptist Church. I'm not sure you'd get many people to come. What's going to happen to me when I get there? But at any rate, what they were saying was, the way this church started seemed like a terrible accident. It seemed like God was restraining His power, and He did, but He knew that would bring about the beginning of of a new body of believers. He was still working. So because of his power, whether he exercises it or restrains it, we can trust him when life seems out of control. The third reason we can trust God when life seems out of control is because of his compassion. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. This is a beautiful story of compassion, Jesus' compassion for his disciples. I think it's pretty clear that the Roman soldiers are there in such force because they intend to arrest not only Jesus, but the 11 disciples too. And so Jesus asks the question a second time, whom do you seek, to focus the attention on him. And after what happened the first time he asked that question, when they were all struck backward with such power, it seems pretty reasonable to follow Jesus' request that he let these men go. And they do. So Jesus, though, the Bible tells us here in verse 9, Jesus is doing this to fulfill what he himself had said earlier in John 6, 39, I will not lose any of those that the Father's given me. So you see, all of, all of the disciples could have been put to death at this time as well. They could have been taken to crosses and put to death. And there would have probably not been any resurrection for them. So, so Jesus is sparing them in his compassion from a certain death at this point. He is fulfilling his compassionate promise to them that I will not lose any of you that the Father's given me. What compassion for those who followed him. And you know, my friend, Jesus shows the very same compassion Toward us. You know, he's made similar promises to you about how he's not going to let you be taken by even the devil himself. 
I want to read a few verses for you, verses that are familiar to you. In Romans chapter 8, just think of these promises of God's compassion that He's given to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And by the way, that's His purpose. That's the purpose, that God works all things together for good toward is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be more Christ-like. So, so he's, He has predestined us, marked us out ahead of time to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All past tense, including the glorified, because that's just as certain in God's eyes as the fact that you were called by Him and justified by Him. You are, you are just as certain as heaven as the day you were saved. And notice how He reinforces that promise this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And that charge is a legal charge, like the legal standing that we have in Christ of justification. Who could bring a legal charge to undo that? The answer is this. It is God who justifies. Nothing else need be said. If God's justified us, nobody's going to be able to undo that, not even Satan himself. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So His death, resurrection, ascension, intercession, all promises that we will never lose our eternal life. Who shall, the, the, the crowning question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things that he's just mentioned, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us who showed His compassion for us and dying for us and ascending for us and interceding for us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth and just in case He missed anything nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What tremendous promises that He in His compassion knows how to take care of us and protect us. When our middle daughter Ruth was born um, in 1979, she, uh, she was born with a tongue tie. Um, if you know what a tongue tie is, maybe some of you had children with that, that the little piece of cartilage that connects the tongue to the base of the mouth was connected on her all the way out to the end of her tongue. That's called a tongue tie. And so she couldn't form her words very well when she began talking. The, the doctor told us 
said, you know, usually children will fall, and that's pretty fragile. It will kind of clear up on its own, or they'll, they'll do something, you know, and it'll stretch, you know, or whatever. And it usually takes care of itself. But in case it doesn't, when she's 18 months old, come back. So we went back to see the pediatrician when she was 18 months old because it hadn't changed any. And so he said, okay, it's a very simple fix. I can do it right here in the office. I'm just going to clip that little piece of cartilage so it frees the tongue. And uh, he said, we'll do it right now. He said, my nurse is over in this uh, room next, uh, next to us doing something. So he looked at me and he said, would you help me? Uh, uh, help, what, help you with what? He said, all I need you to do is hold her head still. And so she's lying with her head toward me on that little uh, table there. And I get up to the end of the table and I'm holding her head as tightly as I dare hold it because I don't want anything to slip, you know, to her to move and, you know, cut half of the side of her face or something like that. I don't want that to happen. So I'm holding her head as tightly as I dare hold it. And she doesn't know what's going on. She's 18 months old. She's looking up at me and screaming at the top of her lungs. And I can see the look in her eyes. And I know what she's saying is, Daddy, why are you doing this to me? Why are you hurting me like this? And I couldn't explain to her. I think I remember mumbling some things about, you know, honey, this is for your good. I promise you. I love you. I would never hurt you. I'm doing this for your good. You'll be able to lick a sucker someday. You'll be able to stick your tongue out at your sister someday. You know, you, you, you'll be able to do all kinds of things you can't do now. I know this is for your good. And I have always thought of that moment in these last 44 years. I have thought about how many times I've been flat on my back looking up at my Father in heaven saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why aren't you doing something? to help me with this. And I just imagine my heavenly father holding my head in his hands and saying, son, this is for your good. I'm doing this because I know you need this in your life for what's going to happen five years down the road, 10 years down the road. This is good for you. I know it doesn't feel that way. I know it doesn't seem that way. But this is a part of my compassion for you. My friend, even though sometimes in our lives the things that happen may not make us feel like God's very compassionate, it may not sound and look like compassion, it may not feel like compassion, but He is always loving us. Always loving us, no matter what happens. So when life seems out of control, you can trust His compassion. And then finally, when life seems out of control, you can trust His sacrifice. You can trust His sacrifice for you. These are, these are amazing and precious verses, verses 10 through 12. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, this passage says two things about Jesus' sacrifice for us. First of all, it says, he will not die prematurely. Now, just think of what's going on here. Peter's finally had enough. And so he whips out this hidden short dagger-type sword 
out of his, from inside his robe, and he just whacks at the nearest guy next to him. Now, I don't know if the guy ducked or if Peter is just, you know, better with fishing nets than he is with a sword, but he only got his ear. And so Jesus immediately steps in. I can imagine, can't you, 200 Roman soldiers now have drawn their swords. They're ready to take them all out right here on the spot. But Jesus will not die prematurely. He can't die yet. This is not in the Father's plan. And so Jesus steps in and again takes control of the situation. First he says to Peter, put your sword up. And and one of the other gospels says he told Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword. So he knew what was going to happen. The other Gospels tell us, for instance, Luke tells us that Jesus then turned, I believe, to the soldiers. At least he said, no more of this. And I think that probably was to the soldiers. And then he picked up Malchus's ear, Luke says, and healed it. Put it back on and healed it. Another demonstration of his power. Matthew tells us that he also told Peter, do you not know that I have 12 legions of angels that I could call? In other words, Peter, I don't need you and your little dagger. i got 12 legions of soldiers waiting on the precipice of heaven for my signal. Now think about this. A Roman legion was 10 cohorts. A cohort is somewhere around 600 soldiers typically. Multiply that by 10, 6,000. One legion is 6,000. Twelve legions, 72,000 angels ready to come to Jesus' aid should he give the signal. Now, think about this. Remember in the Old Testament when one angel slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers when they were gathered around Jerusalem? Remember that? If one angel can take on 185,000 soldiers... Do you think 200 Roman soldiers can stand up against 72,000 angels? What Jesus is communicating is, i got plenty of help if I need it, but that's not God's purpose now. By the way, remember the old gospel song? He could have called 10,000 angels. We've got to rewrite that song, brother. He could have called 72,000 angels. And he could have, but he didn't. Because he will not die prematurely in the garden however he will die sacrificially he will die sacrificially you see what jesus said there in verse 11 put your sword into its sheath shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me interesting expression isn't it remember it was the cup he asked to be taken from him in the garden but nevertheless he yielded to the will of the father if you go back into the old testament you find the, uh, the, the reason for that expression, the cup. Particularly in the book of Psalms, it is used of the pouring out of God's wrath and God's judgment. That's the cup. It's often used that way, particularly in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, of the pouring out of God's wrath. When Jesus talks about drinking the cup, He's talking about what will happen on the cross when He takes all of the wrath of God for our sins. And he drinks it to the full. He drinks it to the bottom of the cup. All of the wrath of God for us. So although Jesus will not die prematurely, he says, I will die sacrificially. 
And that has to happen tomorrow in the plan of the Father. There are some other steps to go through before we get there. This has to happen at just the right time in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. It has to happen in the way that the Old Testament said it would happen. A very public execution on a cross, not a hidden middle-of-the-night covert operation by 200 Roman soldiers. This has to happen according to Old Testament prophecy. And so he will die sacrificially for our sins. My friend, you can rest assured that the Jesus who died for you in fulfillment of the Father's plan will always give you what you need, regardless of whether or not you feel it or see it. He is always working out His purpose when your life seems out of control. So you see the real question that we face when life seems out of control is not, the real question is not, how big are my problems? The real question is, how big is my God? How big is my God? Do I have just a few moments that I could give you an illustration from Isaiah 40 about how big your God is? This will help us get a little bit of perspective on how big our God is. You know, the oceans of the world contain more than 340 quintillion gallons of water. Now, what's a quintillion? I looked it up. It's one and 18 zeros. And the oceans have 340 quintillion gallons of water. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says that God holds them all in the hollow of his hand. That's how big God is. The, the, uh, the earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. You know what a sextillion is? I looked it up. It's one with 21 zeros. Unimaginable numbers we're talking about here. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. 2,000 pounds in a ton, right? And Isaiah 40 verse 15 says that to God the earth is like a piece of dust on his scales. Doesn't even register. Wait. Wow. The universe, the known universe, now that uh, the Webb, James Webb telescope is up and has given us even a greater reach into deeper space than the Hubble telescope did, the, the known universe, the expanse, is now estimated at 94 billion light years. Now, now we're getting into some unimaginable numbers. You know what a light year is, don't you? The, the uh, distance that light travels in a year. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Okay, do the math. Multiply 186,000. Do it real quick in your head. Multiply 186,000 by 60. There you got minutes. By another 60, you got in one hour. By 24, you got one day. By 365, now you got one year. That's one light year. And we're talking about 94 billion light years is the expanse of the universe. And the Bible says in Isaiah 40 verse 12 that he measures it with the span of his hand. From thumb to little finger. That's how big God is. Scientists are now telling us, because of the Webb Telescope, they used to say there were like 100, million, 100 billion galaxies. Now they're saying at least 200 billion galaxies. 
each galaxy having at least a hundred billion stars. And Isaiah 40 says that God knows the name of each one. It's not just that he knows the number. That would be incredible enough, but he's named every star. Now, that's how big God is. Whenever you get to thinking about your problems, read Isaiah 40. And remember how big God is. So if your life is out of control, maybe the question we need to, or maybe the thing we need to do is not just tell God how big our problems are. It's good to do that. God wants us to do that. He wants us to come to Him. But we should not stop there. We should then turn around and tell our problems how big our God is. Jesus demonstrated that in His control over everything that was happening at His arrest. Father, thank You. Thank You that You are such a big God. You are more than capable of taking care of any of our needs, all of our life situations, even when our lives seem out of control because of our limited, finite perspective. We don't understand what's going on. We wonder where you are. But you're always there in your knowledge, your power, your compassion, based on your sacrifice for us. You've already done the greatest thing you could ever do for us. Thank you, Father. We can trust you. I pray for those hearts who are here today who are besieged by the difficulties of life, that they will look to you, the majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and find rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.